Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Valentine's Day is right around the corner, and if you want to do something great for your loved ones, keep your heart as healthy as possible. So today we're going to be talking with Dr. Elisa Saragosa from Kaiser Permanente. She is a cardiologist with extra special training in adult congenital heart disease. And we're going to talk about some of the basics of how to keep your heart healthy today. And what are some of the things you can do if you do have a diagnosis of heart problems or heart disease to keep yourself going as healthy as you can as long as possible. So thank you for joining me today on The Body Show. My pleasure. Now, a lot of people know that there's the heart-healthy diet and there's things they should eat and things they should follow. Are there certain medical conditions that predispose us to having problems with our heart? Absolutely. You know, it's uh, certain medical conditions and also lifestyle choices. And so we should talk about both of them. Um, Among the risk factors for cardiovascular disease, we can see diabetes, So people who have high glucose and hypertension, people who have high cholesterol or hyperlipidemia. Um, But we also see other conditions that are sometimes not looked as much, like rheumatic conditions. We now know that having, you know, rheumatic conditions like lupus or arthritis can also predispose you to have cardiovascular diseases. And then, you know, we should talk about certain lifestyle choices, um, such as people who don't exercise routinely, um, having, you know, the wrong diet, which probably could lead you more to having diabetes and also hypertension. So, um, and then also not sleeping well can also predispose you to have cardiovascular disorders, um, not having ideal body weight. It's an among the other of, of the factors, and then not doing routine activity. So people who are more sedentary, um, also that predisposes you to have cardiovascular disease. I think you pretty much described everyone. <laughs> I don't think there's any group that was not in that list. Maybe triathletes, okay. Maybe they're at low risk. So you talked about some medical conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and those are pretty prevalent. Mm-hmm. If you have those conditions, even if they're well-controlled, does that still increase your risk for having heart problems? Yeah. I mean, I think that definitely controlling your risk factors early on in life is the best thing. So that's why prevention, prevention, prevention is the ideal um, because then really we have a larger impact on prevention. Um, But even if you have ideal, you know, or controlled Illness, diabetes, diabetes or, or hypertension—just the fact that you have the it. fact that you have them definitely can predispose you to having any sort of cardiovascular disease, from you know having a heart attack, but it can also predispose you to have things like heart failure when your heart pumping function is a little bit decreased. Um, so that's why routine care with your medical doctors is the best way to detect any sort of cardiovascular illness. So how would you detect that? I mean, a lot of people will go in, they'll have their cholesterol checked, and it's pretty good. They'll have maybe their sugar checked. Maybe they don't have diabetes. Blood pressure is kind of on the borderline for them, but they're not having chest pain. Mm -hmm. Is there any way for someone who's not having any symptoms to know how healthy their heart is? Yeah, I mean, I... 
sometimes what I tell my patients, um, there's certain things that can tell you that you're doing well or that your heart's doing well. Um, you know, among the, the ones that is easy to, I guess, to do is if you're routinely exercising and if you have activity, even if it's like low to moderate intensity and you're feeling well, you're not having any symptoms like shortness of breath, you're having no symptoms like chest pain, um, you know, probably your heart's doing okay. Um, the doctor can then also check on your heart, listening to your listen to your heart to make sure you're not having any, you know, murmurs or that your pulse is regular. And so there are certain things that you can tell by helping your doctor, you know, tell your doctor how you feel when you exercise, how you feel when you are doing light activity around the house. But then also the doctor can pick up things when you do your routine checkup, like making sure you're not having an irregular rhythm and making sure that the heart sounds are okay, um, you know, that your lungs are, don't have fluid. Um, so there are certain things definitely that we can pick up that way. Um, you know, I think people feel very reassured to have a, a, some magical checkup. And, you know, there are certain things that can tell you if you're at higher risk of, for example, having a heart attack. But in reality, you know, probably the best thing to do is to control your risk factors as best as possible, have routine uh, relationship with your primary care physician so that, you know, together you can detect any early signs of cardiovascular disease. So those would be if you couldn't do exercise or if you can't go up a flight of stairs or without getting short of breath or maybe that hill you used to walk up every day now is a little bit harder. Correct. Because you can't do it as yes. much anymore. It's always, and that's why, you know, getting in the routine of exercising when somebody's young is really good because then that routine helps you to know what you're able to do. And of course, you know, as we all age, Maybe our exercise capacity is going to reduce, be reduced a little bit. But in reality, you know, that's a great checkup. How are you feeling when you're doing activity? Are you feeling a little bit more out of breath than usual? Um, do you need to stop more frequently? Uh, do you feel like you have palpitations or like your heart flutters, you know, out of nowhere? Um, are you feeling a little bit uncomfortable in your chest? Um, so those subtle signs, it's always... Um, good to tell the doctor so that together you can make a decision if that needs further workup. Now, a couple of years ago, the medical community, although maybe it's more than a couple because I remember when this happened, <laughs> maybe 10 or 15 years ago now, <laughs> the medical community realized that we were focusing a lot on heart disease symptoms in men. Yeah, Chest pain, pressure in the chest, maybe radiating to the arm, maybe going up the jaw. But Symptoms for women were often slightly different. Mm -hmm. What would be more common for a woman who's having heart disease? Do they experience the same symptoms as men, or is it something different or maybe more subtle? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, and I think that it varies. Um, you know, both men and women can have any sort of symptoms. But one of the most important things that we did as a community is recognizing that women also are at high risk of cardiovascular diseases. It's also the number one for both men and women um, risk for death. Um, and, you know, women can present with more subtle signs. It is important that chest pain, pressure-like sensation in the chest with radiation to the arm, maybe diaphoresis or sweat, feeling like you're sweating. Um, it's pre the predominant symptom. So women still have 
you know, chest pain just like men. But I think that the main message is that sometimes, you know, it can be more subtle. And so maybe sometimes you will feel a little bit of, you know, what feels like a, like pain in your stomach or in the high upper stomach or like indigestion um, or, you know, shortness of breath. And it might be a little bit of more subtle signs. And, you know, of course, not everybody that feels that they're having some pain in their stomach should be thinking that they have a heart attack. But it is important to know that if it keeps happening um, it is best to talk to the doctor because, yes, the, the signs can be subtle. So I think that the main message is women are at risk. Women can also have a heart attack um, and any of the other heart conditions. And so it is important that the, I think that sometimes, you know, they tend to try to, you know, let their symptoms not, not, not take them to the doctor because they're busy taking care of the family. Um, but it is important to not ignore your symptoms and then, uh, you know, get checked. Well, I often find that, you know, for people who they're, they have a family history of heart disease or, you know, they have aunties or, or sisters or mothers, the women are very attuned to that. And they often will be a little bit more suspicious of it being their heart if there's a family history. But if there's no family history, it's often like, well, no, nobody in my family had this, so I couldn't have it. But in fact, if you have some of those other risk factors, the diabetes, the blood pressure, the cholesterol, you could have it. Yeah. And you ought to take those symptoms seriously, particularly if every time you go walking, you get indigestion, because that's probably more likely to be your heart than your stomach at that point. Absolutely. And, you know, you bring a great point. Um, although women can present with similar symptoms or, so, you know, so, but very subtly, there are some risk factors that are very specific for women that we've also learned about. For example, women who have early menopause, so who stop having their periods very early on, they have higher risk of cardiovascular disease and heart attack. Also, for example, women who had a lot of miscarriages, have higher risk of heart attacks. And also, you know, those are uh, pre uh, women who had preeclampsia or hypertension during pregnancy also have higher risk. So I think that, you know, talking about the non very, you know, classic risk factors, uh, women definitely have some other things that sometimes um, it's important to tell your doctors, you know. So if you had, pre again, preeclampsia or early menopause, um, hypertension during pregnancy is another one. So pregnancy, we always say that it's like a little stress test for the heart. And, you know, sometimes, you know, women who have other conditions then, you know, can later on go on to develop heart attack. Mm -hmm. All right. The stress, the little stress test of pregnancy, which leads to a large stress test for the next several decades, <laughs> if not the rest of your life. Okay, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Elisa Saragosa. She is a cardiologist at Kaiser Permanente. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are the tests that are done for the heart and how do you know which type of stress test might be best suited for you. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Elisa Saragosa. She's a cardiologist at Kaiser Permanente, and we're talking today about ways to keep your heart healthy because later this week, Valentine's Day, so perfect timing. Right before the break, we were talking about risk factors for having heart problems, what are the differences in symptoms for both men and women, and what are some of the things that people can do to prevent having heart troubles. We talked about a a lot about lifestyle things, exercising regularly, keeping your risk factors down, cholesterol, blood pressure, et cetera. And then you mentioned some of the inflammatory conditions, mm-hmm. which, you know, rheumatologic issues, autoimmune disorders, which you're right. A lot of times we don't necessarily associate that with a higher risk of heart problems, but there may be some tie in with inflammation that leads to these sorts of cardiac issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Inflammation definitely has been linked to heart attack Um Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, now let's talk about stress testing. So let's say somebody has symptoms. They come in to see you or they come in to see their primary care provider and they say, I'm having symptoms and we're concerned enough, whether it be the chest pain or the indigestion with activity or whatever they may say, that they're having symptoms of a serious potential heart problem. What sort of testing needs to be done to help figure that out? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the first thing that to know is that, number one, it's important to talk to the doctor about your symptoms and come up with that shared decision-making. You know, even though that stress testing is super important, it is very important to know that the first thing is, of course, to go back to risk factors and try to manage them as best as possible because sometimes that's the initial and most important thing, right? What can we modify? How is your blood pressure? Is it really well-controlled? Maybe, you know, you were thinking about initiating a cholesterol medication because your cholesterol was borderline. That is a perfect opportunity to, first of all, again, focus on reducing risk factors because it's like a little alarm, right? That set of maybe at the end your stress test will be normal, but it's a perfect opportunity to go and revise your risk factors with your doctor and try to make excellent, um, you know, changes. Now, what about stress testing? So stress testing is, is useful, when we think that the symptoms could be from a heart blockage, right? So what we're trying to replicate is putting the heart in a little bit of more stress, making it work harder to see if there is potentially less blood flow to the heart muscle, and could that cause the symptoms that you're having? Um, There are different types of stress tests. Some people you know, might be more familiar with the treadmill test where, you know, they're going to ask you to walk on a treadmill. And basically what we do is we hook them to the EKG lead. So we put some stickers in the chest and then, you know, you're going to walk on the treadmill initially kind of slow and not a lot of inclination. And then the inclination is going to increase as well as the speed. And basically we're trying to work you at your maximum. Um, the stress test gives us a lot of information in two, two ways. It can assess to see if you have heart blockage, but it will also tell us about how, you know, how functional are you? You know, are you doing very, like what you should be doing for exercise for somebody your age and your gender? So they match it based on age and gender. So if you can go two minutes, but everyone else your age can go five, that's telling us something about you. Correct. But if you can go like eight or nine minutes, then you must be doing really well because that's sort of the peak of some of these stress tests. Absolutely. So they've done a lot of studies where 
even if you had a little bit of normal EKG, you know, if you have what we call a really good functional status, which means that you can exercise for a long period of time, that carries a lower risk of cardiovascular mortality, meaning that you have less risk of dying from any cardiovascular conditions. If you exercise very little for what you're supposed to exercise for your age and for your gender, that carries a little, even if your electrocardiogram was normal, it tells us that you're somebody who is at higher risk you know, of events. It could be cardiac, but it also reflects many other conditions. So definitely the amount of exercise, we're going to be checking on that. We're going to be checking how your blood pressure does with exercise, meaning that sometimes what we unmask is somebody who actually has a high blood pressure response to exercise. And again, that gives us opportunity to go back and potentially treat risk factors. And then, of course, we look at the electrocardiogram to see if there's any changes that suggest that there's a heart blockage which then would lead to further testing. Sometimes stress test, you know, is done only with the treadmill and the electrocardiogram, but sometimes as, you know, many of our listeners might have experienced and you get, in, you know, there's other types of stress tests when we add a, what we call an imaging modality, meaning that we also are going to look at the heart in by some means. And sometimes we do it with what we call a nuclear stress test. So we inject you with nuclear isotopes that are specific for the heart muscle when you're at your peak exercise, and then we take images of your heart. So what we see is, of course, if there's no blockage, those isotopes are going to go to the heart muscle, and then we're going to see that the heart lights up. And if there's a blockage, then some areas of the heart might not light up. Or sometimes we do an, an echocardiogram where we take pictures of your heart with ultrasound and at your peak exercise. And if the heart's not moving very well, that could indicate that there's a heart blockage. So there's all these other modalities that allow us to see if there's heart blockage. There's also CT scan now where they might ask you to go through a CT scan that is very specific for the coronary arteries. And then it actually is really sensitive to detect any sort of blockage, especially in, you know, the, our younger population. So how do you know which test would be best? Your doctor will know. <laughs> Your doctor will know and will do sure decision making. But again, anytime when we, when we can exercise some, somebody, we choose to do a stress test with exercise because that's going to give us a lot more information. Some of our listeners know that they might not be able to exercise. They have knee problems. Um, you know, they're you know, bound to a wheelchair or they just really have a lot of symptoms. In, in those instances, they might have what we call a pharmacologic stress test, which basically is medicine that, you know, is like exercise on a syringe where we're going to try to replicate what exercise does for your heart to try to de detect those blockages. But, you know, it is a shared decision making, of course, expertise in the center where you are receiving care. Um, it has a lot to do with your risk factors and your age. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Elisa Saragosa. She's a cardiologist at Kaiser Permanente. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what happens if the stress test is positive. You might have blockages. What's next? We'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Elisa Saragosa. She's a cardiologist at Kaiser Permanente. And we are talking today about heart healthy, how you can stay that way, particularly for Valentine's Day. So right before the break, we were talking about different types of stress tests. Some of those involve exercising in a treadmill. Some of them involve ultrasounds or other types of imaging studies. And even you, there are now CT scans that can give you information that might help if you're having symptoms that suggest you may have a blockage. Now, with all of those types of tests, if you see blockages, the next thing that might happen is that someone might be referred to do an angiogram or an angioplasty or have a stent done. So for those people for whom there's a high likelihood based on their stress test or based on the CT scan that you described, how does that process take place? And what's the likelihood, given those other tests, that someone might have a blockage that needs an intervention? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, one important thing to point out is that, you know, the more information, we have more and more and more information that not everybody who has a positive stress test will end up having what we call a coronary angiogram, where is where we put a catheter um, through the artery and then inject some dye and then look at the heart arteries under an x-ray machine to confirm heart blockage. We've learned more and more as a community that, medications are really important. And so it might be that you have a stress test and that the doctor and the cardiologist or your doctor still recommend what we call medical management because we have learned that, you know, in many instances, medical management is just as good as putting stents. That's really important because, you know, it points out the importance of medical management. And when we say medical management is we're going to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, we're going to put you on maybe medications that are going to reduce the chest pain. We call those antianginals. We're going to put you on aspirin and we're going to make sure that you're on a cholesterol medication if you need to be on one. But sometimes we will decide that the stress test was really abnormal or there's other things that will let us know that you really need or we need to confirm what is the, where is the blockage, um, and to see if we need to treat it. In those instances, we will take um, we'll do this test called a coronary angiogram, and again, it's the one that they put a catheter through the artery, and then we can see the arteries under the X-ray machine would die. And if we do detect a blockage that would benefit from a stent, they can do that through the same you know procedure, and then. It's not. Uh, it's a procedure that it's done peripherally, which means that it's not an open heart surgery. It actually is all through, uh, you know, like a, an IV they put in an artery, and then through there they can feed cat catheters that actually carry the stents. And a stent is like I always say, like a little metal mesh that expands and then stays in your artery with you forever. Um, you know, if somebody does need a, a stent, you know, it might be because either we are trying to minimize their symptoms or we are trying to prevent or improve their heart function or it's because it's in a very specific area of the arteries where we know the patients will benefit from these stents. And then the importance is to make sure that the, you, they take the medications that they you know, should get after a stent. There are medications that prevent that that stent gets blocked with clot or, you know, so it is important to continue taking the medications. Well, and it's it's a high risk for the first year up to 18 months of having a stent that it could cause a clot. And if that stent is in an artery that was blocked and now it's opened 
and you have a clot that develops in there, that can be disastrous. Yeah, so exactly. There's, it's really important to take the medications um, that prevent the stent from blocking off. And, you know, your cardiologist will look at other things, other medications you might need to take because some people are already on blood thinners. Um, some people might have high risk of bleeding. And so the duration will be determined by shared decision making. But um, the most important thing is if you are taking those medications that prevent the stent from blocking out off from like Plavix or Ticagrelor or Prasugrel, you know, you probably know the names. It's important to not stop them until your cardiologist indicates that it's safe to do so. So, so if you're given a prescription, keep taking it. Keep taking it for sure and don't stop the medicines. You know, some people have side effects. And I think that the important thing to know is that, you know, your doctor is there to work with you. Any doctor that you see, you know, we're always happy to discuss potential side effects. Sometimes we might discover that it was not the medication and we might be able to help. But it is always so important to try to, you know, discuss things with the doctor because then together we can come up with other options. But stopping medications, is it can be pretty dangerous, especially for this kind of situation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what if somebody has all the classic symptoms of a heart problem, but you go in and take a look at their arteries and you find that they're clear. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes we see that there's no severe blockage. Um, you know, sometimes we might find that it's mildly, there's a mild block, blockage or plaque or moderate plaque. And those instances, patients would not benefit from stents. And the main benefit is from taking medications. Because interestingly, also, most heart attacks don't happen, like when people present with an actual heart attack to the hospital, most heart attacks don't happen from you know, areas where there was a high degree of blockage. Sometimes heart attack can happen from areas where there was mild plaque or moderate plaque. So again, it points out to the importance of prevention. Um, so making sure that all your risk factors are well managed. So yes, many times patients will come get the coronary angiogram and we will determine that the best way to proceed is with medications. So why do you think people who have the blockages that might not meet the criteria to put a stent in actually are the ones who also have heart problems. Do the plaques in their arteries rupture? Is there something about it that causes them to break open? And what can you do to prevent that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's a very important question. And I guess we keep hammering on the same issue, but it is so important because, you know, we know that people who not, do not have a diabetes that are, is not controlled. So if your hemoglobin A1C is high, you know, that can lead to plaque rupture. Um, we know that if you have high cholesterol, that's another important risk factor. Stress. So, of course, I mean, stress is important. So trying to manage stress, and it's so difficult, right? Because there's, you know, not a magic. I always tell my patients it's so important to learn to manage stress, but it's also a very personal issue. You know, you have, but you have to try things, right? You know, managing stress is not going to come magically to you. And we always are going to have other stressors in our lives. But, you know, activity sometimes helps a lot. So going for walks and we, you know, we live in such a beautiful place that just taking a walk on the beach. I mean, I think that, you know, that relieves stress, family and bonding with friends, it's also been demonstrated to decrease stress. Volunteering, 
decreases stress. So it is a very personal issue, but you have to try different things because there's always, so it, it is important to prevent heart attack. Um, a good diet. So it has been demonstrated that if you have a good diet, there's less what we call plaque rupture and less likelihood of having a heart attack. Um, sleeping well. So people who have poor sleep, um, you know, also can have more likelihood of plaque rupture. So all of those things that lead to inflammation and stress in, in those walls of the arteries. Wow, it really gets back to that whole, you know, you are what you eat and you are what you exercise and do. And stress is going to come for you. If anybody has the solution to lowering all the stress in their life, you need to let us know because that's part of the reason why you mentioned heart disease is very common for both men and women and something we need to be extremely aware of. I want to thank you, Dr. Lisa Saragosa from Kaiser Permanente for sharing with us your expertise today. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. We will have to do it again sometime soon because there's so much to talk about regarding heart health. And it's not just about exercise, diet, and working on stress. It's about the whole entire picture, including your lifestyle and every part of it. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. <laughs>